0: All right, thanks, Peter. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today. Really good to see your faces, uh, and for Letha and I to be back. We were gone for a couple of weeks in East Tennessee, uh, seeing her side of her most of her side of the family, and um, and seeing some national parks on the way home too, which is super fun for us. But it's good to get out of town for a bit. But hope your summer's been going really well as well. And uh, we're going to dive right back into our sermon series, which uh, we uh, sometimes do in the summers, which we really love to do when we can, which is uh, called a, a big questions uh, series, which is a chance for us as pastors to preach questions you guys have given us about theology or the Bible or about the church or about Christian living or something like that. It could be about our, our church specifically as it pertains to our vision maybe, uh, and just to preach those questions. Actually, sometimes our own questions. We, we have done that too. Uh, it's usually questions you guys have given us though. Uh, as well, and today is one of, uh, one of those. So uh, we'll just dive right into that, and hopefully it's a question that, uh, if you haven't asked yourself, that uh, it'll still be a very uh, helpful, relevant thing uh, to kind of offer back to you. If you're not a Christian yet, even, uh, this will be hopefully a very helpful sermon for you too to understand what the nature of our faith really is, what the nature of the gospel is, what really makes us tick, uh, what's central for us as Christians, and how does that speak into our lives. So uh, the question we got, uh, which is a great one, is, can you preach a sermon? on Philippians 2, 5 to 11? And the answer is, yes, I can. Let's close in prayer. No, it's not that simple. Um, But the more expanded question, uh, which I'll read here too, is how does this passage or how can it be thought of in relation to our Christian lives? Uh, How should it be? And so what I want to do today is back up and actually read from verses 1 to 11. If you want to open a Bible that you have or a phone app, Please feel free to do that. Uh, we'll be in Philippians 2, 1 to 11 today. And just going to preach a sermon on that passage, kind of like we would uh, if we were in a series on the book of Philippians, which we have been in the past. Uh, but we will talk about it, though, in relation to this question especially. So how, how it addresses the Christian life in community with the church, what it should look like, and most importantly, why. Uh, if you did not know, Philippians is one of the New Testament letters written by Paul, who was a former Christian murdering Jew who Jesus saved, we read about that in Acts chapter 9, and whose life changed, of course, and who now, as we read about in the New Testament, planted churches throughout the ancient world of that day, the Roman Empire, and who writes letters back to those churches uh, because now he's separated from them. Either he's in prison or he's just out planting other churches and he takes time to pause and write back to encourage them and to speak to their questions in some cases uh, about faith and, and gospel and Christian living matters and so forth. And so these are essentially love letters. It, I, I encourage you to think about it that way. These are love letters from God, not just from Paul, to churches, but they're actually from God to us. He is the one who inspired them to not just be the, for the Philippian church in this case, but for us as Christians who are like the Philippians, we're, we're sinners saved by grace, we're a mess, uh, but we're people who have been gathered from our old lives, uh, from tombs, from despair. From being from running our hellbound race, as as that song says that we sing here, uh, to uh, into fellowship with him and, and other Christians, and so we're we're a lot like the Philippians. But they're they're love letters. They're personable. They intend to remind us of love. Big part of what the letters exist for to remind us of God's love, like a like a human love letter might be, right? Like if a uh, if a guy's writing to a gal and, and he and he loves her, he might write to. Uh, remind her of his love. It's, that's exactly what these letters do, especially in the first parts of them. And so, uh, but they also instruct us on questions like, how then shall we live? Now that we're saved by grace, not by works, filled with God's spirit and called into his family, as sons and daughters, how then shall we live? And, and uh, a, lot of, a lot of times that question is asked um, or assumed and um, the letters address it. So, Let's read Philippians 2, 1 to 4 to begin. I'm going to break today down into into two sections, and then we'll come back to this this greater section later. All right, so verses 1 to 4 uh, to begin. Verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. All right, so uh, two things today. I want to look at this for these first four verses to kind of set up the next section. Uh, but one important thing to see about this passage is the if-then nature of the argument. So this passage is essentially an it, kind of a classic If-then argument. If this thing is true, then let this other thing also be true, right? It's kind of a simple way of arguing for something or just kind of talking about a concept on some level. We do this all the time, uh, but the Bible does this um, in a kind of a very preeminent, ultimate kind of way. But in these types of arguments, the the if side holds the power, right? Because if it doesn't happen, then the other side will never happen. So the, the statement, if you make a time machine, then you could skip over the year 2020, uh, makes the time machine more necessary, right? And more in the place of power and significance. Uh, the New Testament letters are full of these. I know many of you are aware of this, but the New Testament argues and talks this way a lot. The New Testament is not a just-do-it kind of book, in other words. It's not a just-do-it kind of book book or worldview. Instead, it's an if-then type of book. And the if has to do with deeper spiritual truths that are necessary starting points before getting to the then. All right, so just to kind of back up here for a second, I'm going to go ahead and just kind of wreck the end of the Philippians 2 story, if you haven't read it here, uh, by saying that what Paul's going to end up arguing for is more humility and love and unity in the Philippian church. So, more humility towards other Christians, more love for other Christians, more unity with other Christians in the context of their particular um, church, the Philippian church. And really, kind of as an aside here, I said this first service to you, but uh, as a bit of an aside, those are wonderful things, aren't they? If you think about, like, just the nature of Christian living and what we should be working for in the confines of, or the context of the church, those are wonderful things, and they're also very relevant. I was thinking this week about where we just where we are as a, a city and a culture and a world and, and how much is going on, Paul's desire for these things for Christians is uh, very, very centering. Especially if you think about, um, some of you know this, but um, Paul's context or, or the context of the church in the first century being a part of the Roman Empire, uh, things weren't great for Christians in the first century. You know, And so all the stuff we deal with, with all of the unrest, uh, the civil unrest and uh, the, the pandemic doesn't help, of course, but all of, like, the, the pressure from, uh, you know, Christians or not Christians to do more, to care more, to fight for more change, to solve problems out there, again, all under the umbrella of just a lot of terrible things going on and, and uncertainty and hopelessness and, and, and despair. Paul had, the, the, the Philippian church had the same kind of stuff and even worse things going on. Uh, the issue with racial injustice was way worse then than it is today. Uh, the powerlessness for Christians to affect any kind of change, the, the persecution they were facing from Nero uh, especially, but other emperors as well, the, the civil unrest, the social upheaval constantly, um, famines, uh, injustices uh, was uh, dialed way up uh, more than it is today. So I, I would say comparable, but also so we can learn things, but it was also um, also worse. And so when you think about it in that context, what is Paul saying? How is he helping the church to focus and think about what they care about the most? Or to think about their lives or the how then shall we live type question. He's not saying post about how much you hate the emperor or Christians fix the system politically or otherwise. There's actually very little cultural commentary at all in the New Testament like that. Instead, what he's saying is, Preach the good news of Jesus Christ over and over again to yourself and others. And then, in the context of that, make your church healthy. Work on these things like love and unity and, and, and humility, other things as well. But in the context of your church, speak and embody the gospel uh, to your church and, and work at making her more uh, of a spotless, spotless bride. And so a big question right off the bat for us as Christians is, is this reflective of where your heart is if you're a Christian? Is this reflective of where your heart is? Is this your primary care and concern? We we can have a lot of cares and concerns in life, right? But is this our primary care and concern? Or the ultimate answer maybe to the how-then-shall-we-live question. Let me say it a little bit differently. If our care for and love for our local church is quelled or snuffed out by our love for some worldly, political, or social cause, no matter how noble, we are sinning and we need to repent in turn of that. We're not impressing Jesus with our impassioned good works that just end up neglecting his bride, which is what he cares most about. This is how these things are very centering and helpful and reminding, is that if we want to have an aligned heart with Jesus, care for his bride, the one he cares about the most. If he's working to make us as his spiritual bride more spotless and pure and um, cognizant of and mature in the gospel of grace to, as Ephesians 4 talks about, to grow up into the head which is Christ as if the whole church is like one body. To grow in unity and love for each other and for a dead and dying world around us. Then care about that because we have a relationship with him and he with us and if his heart is affectionately pointed towards us then uh, it's wrong for ours not to be, even if it's focused on other good things. It's a displacement of where our, our care should be. But this is how Paul then, again, helps the church focus in a world of noise and turmoil and demands and pressures and endless to-do lists. There's a thousand good things you could be doing with your life, but there are a few really good things, if you're, again, if you're a Christian there are a few like ultimate things or really good things that we can be doing and they're not equal. They're, they're not like two orbs like on the same level. It's more like this where there are greater and there's good things and great things. And I think what this is doing help help it to focus on some of those great things. Uh, uh, again, namely our care for Jesus' bread. All right, so let's go back though to the first verse and look at the, the if here. The ifs that he starts with before getting to this humility, love, and unity conclusion. All right? So it's really just verse 1. In verse 1 he says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, which is to say, Are you a Christian? Are you encouraged by the gospel that Jesus died for you? And are you happy in the fact that you're saved from your sins? Or relatedly, If there's any comfort from love, which means are you comforted by Christ's love? If there's any participation in the Spirit, which means are you reborn of the Spirit of God by grace and not by the opposite of that, which is the flesh, the Bible says, or works, what we do with our hands. But are we reborn by the Spirit, by God's active work, by choosing us, loving us, dying for us? Are we born of that Spirit? And do we share in that Spirit? Does He live within us? And He does if we're saved. And then finally, do you have any affection and feelings of mutual care for one another in the church. And so maybe if uh, Paul was speaking to Hiawatha like today in 2020, he might say, though you guys have been separated by a pandemic for so long and there are so many competing agendas and causes and issues going on, is there any remaining love and care for your church in your heart? Is there a glimmer left? And what Paul is saying here, he's not doubting these things are true necessarily. The Philippian church is actually very healthy. So he's not like, assuming the worst for this church. But he is trying to drive them back to some foundational truths about who God is and what the gospel is and who they are in that, in that gospel. And those are big ifs. He's not taking them for granted because if there's no encouragement in Christ and no comfort from being loved by God in spite of our sin, no movement in our hearts as we survey the wondrous cross, then what are we talking about? That's kind of what He's saying, if there's no comfort by being fought for and died for by God, then we should just stop right there because there's no hope for humility then in our lives. There's no hope for love for other people, rightly motivated. There's no hope for unity, that's for sure, amongst a very different, uh, diverse group of people. We could say the same thing about you know another thing or goal or cause, with the same uh, way of thinking. Like if someone comes to counsel for you, or to a pastor, formal or informal, and says, I struggle with anger, I can't shake it, I can't stop gossiping about people because it makes me feel better about myself, or uh, sexual sin or something like that, and they can't shake it, and they come to you as a Christian, but they don't believe that God loves them, well, then what are you going to talk about, right? Right? We're not going to talk about practical advice to overcome anger if, you, if we have forgotten that the God of the universe loved us to the hell and back. We're going to talk about that. That's the ifs, right? If you believe that, then these other things are possible, but those are necessary starting points. And, and this is not just uh, some kind of anecdotal idea. Like, um, I, personally, I would say this is true for me. Also, those that, um, that I've pastored here and, and just known elsewhere, that it's very common to be struggling with sin, and the issue is that we've forgotten that Jesus has died for us. We don't feel it. We don't believe it as much. We don't believe God loves us, and that is the issue, even for for Christians, I mean, not for people who aren't Christians yet. That's the issue, and that's what Paul's getting at here, or it could be another issue like working for racial justice or unity in or outside of the church. Like, to use this language here, we could say, if any of you are encouraged in Christ, if you're comforted by the fact that you're loved by a God who is diverse to you, but who became like you and died for you, who was formerly your enemy but laid his life down for you, who gave everything for you, if that's true, then make my joy complete by going and loving someone who is different from you, maybe even an enemy of yours. Do you, do you see the flow of like theological logic there? The if-then? This is how the Bible thinks and talks. Without the former, there's no power or possibility in in the latter. And so so again, this is, is not just do it, it's slow down, get comforted by the gospel, then let the gospel move in you so it might be imaged and reflected to others, especially those in your local church or other Christian friends you know in your life. Okay, then he goes to the thens, verses two and following. He says, If all that's true, then complete my joy by by having the same mind, by being unified, the same love, one mind. Verse three, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Super easy to do that, right? Then verse four, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. And so what, what I like about the flow here is that these big ifs are leading to substantial big thens. These are big things, right? You might look at this and say, those things are impossible. Can anybody really do that? If we are kind of like trying to grade ourselves maybe or think about our life and think, do I do this naturally? Do I think this way? Uh, I mean, I'm speaking as, as a Christian, uh, that then you still might think impossible or very difficult. and. And you'd be right to think that. But the good news is, it's not impossible if the ifs precede them. So where does unity come from, for example? Like, the answer is, by having a similar vision with others. Like, in this case, a vision of Christ. And so you have to have a picture of something that dwarfs, you know, other things you care about or worldly agendas. Um, Some of you guys might know Patrick Lencioni, who's a leadership guru guy that... I don't know if he's a a believer. He sounds like he is sometimes. He isn't right though as one, so I'll just say he isn't. But he writes uh, from this or from this perspective or about this uh, from a leadership perspective and says this is true in organizations as well. When you're trying to unify a team, you have to find something that keeps you up at night in a good way that's bigger and more important and more pressing than anything else you care about in life. So they might be good. These things down here might be okay and good and important, but you've got to find something that galvanizes your, you know, your team that's, that you all are unified on, even though you're different with these lesser things down here. It's the same with Christians. We, this is how we can have the same mind with other believers as very different people. Uh, it's possible because of our shared gospel is the idea. So to rearrange it a little bit, you could say, If you're all encouraged in Christ, then you will have the same mind. You'll think the same way, even though you're very different. But if you aren't encouraged in Christ, how can you be unified is is the idea. You won't be. We'll be pulled and pushed and swayed and divided, and and it it won't be as, as possible. Also, we could ask, where does the power come from to do nothing from selfish ambition or to count others more important than yourselves. This is a wonderful thing. I actually added this uh, clause into my um, marriage or wedding ceremony um, manuscript or whatever. When I do a statement of faith with a couple, I put that in there. Like, is it your intent to do all these things? But also, is it your intent to consider your wife or your husband more important than yourselves? And we look for uh, yes, I do at that point, right? I do. Uh, and that's because it's, In the Bible, and because this is like one of the more important, I'd say this to non-Christians as well, like on a principle-based level, though the motive for those people would be different. But so important. Nothing, but where does the power to do that come from? Because this is like the opposite of what the world screams at us, right? Uh, The world screams in marriage, just marry someone who will help you achieve your potential. Marry someone or get to know people who will help you become uh, what you were meant to be. And so it's almost this like utilitarian purpose to knowing someone, whether it's a friendship or a spouse or, or something like that. But the Bible says, actually look at someone else and say, they're more important and more valuable than me. But it's one thing to say that, but how do you believe it? Right? Like how do you believe it like, to the core? It's one thing to say those words mechanically, but how do you actually do that? And the answer is, again, it comes from the ifs in verse 1. It comes from being more comforted by God's love and so much so that we don't need to self-promote anymore. It comes from knowing that deep down to the very core of our being, we're saved not by works but by grace. Because if you believe that you're saved by or identified by works, it'll be impossible for you not to look down at people that are doing less than you or up to people who are doing more than you. But grace changes everything. It levels everything. It, It There's no place for comparison in the church and in Christianity because we're saved just by God choosing to love us and to save us, not in a reward-based, tit-for-tat kind of way. We already have our reward, right, as believers. Jesus himself, who loved us to hell and back, and so we're freed up and empowered to love others in ways the laws and the commandments could never produce. And this is why Paul keeps going then in Philippians 2. He's not done with his argument yet. He's going to sandwich the command or the imperative here, which is the thens, with another piece of Jesus bread, Uh, this one all the thicker, because in one sense, these things are impossible to do perfectly. Not with God, but humanly speaking, even as Christians, these things are impossibilities. And so he's going to talk more about the power behind where this type of living uh, comes from. And and that is, just to understand this, we'll start with this, but this passage is about Jesus Christ. That might be the most obvious thing I've said all morning. And You might be saying, we've pretty much been saying this, haven't we, for the last, or since you started? And the answer is yes, we have. But the stakes get raised here further because I think Philippians 2 is a great example. This is so good if you're brand new to the Bible and a good reminder for the rest of you, but about how even when the Bible says to us, live this way, Christian, or encourage us to, to live this, a certain way or think a certain way, even in those passages, Jesus is the hero. Even in those types of passages where we might be tempted to think, well, this is the one place the spotlight is taken off of Jesus for just a minute, and so we're talked to. The Bible does not do that. Even when we're talked to, Jesus is the hero. Even when a lifestyle is held out for us, Christ is the power and the meaning behind it, and the ultimate model of that way of, of living. So model and power. And so verses 5 to 11 speak to that. I'm going to read this here, and then we'll come back. So in verse 5 it says, Have this mind among yourselves, Christians, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You have the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, is Paul is laying out the gospel. This is, when we talk about gospel, gospel means good news. This is what it is. Paul is walking us through the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus was, quotes, obedient unto death. And obedient implies what? When when you say that you're obedient to, to something or someone, it implies that someone's telling you to do something, right? How could Christ be obedient to something if someone else wasn't telling him or calling him to do it? So, obedient unto death means his father, God, uh, asked him, called him, gave him the mission of going to die for sinners like us. And so, it implies that his death did something. It wasn't just an example of a humble man, a moral teacher, dying to show us how to be humble, but the Son of God dying to save us from our pride and to share his spirit with us and to rise again as well, right? So, it talks about his Role as king over all the earth and our lives and our worship of Him. And so again, this is not a uh, not a um, Jesus was a really good guy who was very humble. Go and try to do that passage. This is a no. Jesus died for your pride. Like he he rose prideful people from the grave. He, and now we worship Him, and now He's king over all. And so we live and move and have our being under His care and moved by His Spirit and so forth and and, and all of that. So. The idea here then is what he's saying, this is the other piece of Jesus' bread, he's saying this is where the power comes from. This is the gospel and as we live and move and have our being in this gospel and as we meditate on it, this is where this idea of like, not just a subjective of being filled with the spirit idea, but an objective being wrecked and moved by this amazing gospel changes us and remakes us. So the idea is that the gospel saves us from clamoring for attention. It saves us from clamoring for status, from needing to win. It resets us to where we're supposed to be in the grand scheme of things, which is under Jesus' reign as king of the earth. And that can't be done if Jesus came to tell us how great we are or just to give us more to do or to act like a taskmaster because if he did, we'd just be struggling to do more right? And we'd feel worse about ourselves or better about ourselves. Both of those are not a Christian way of thinking, right? But the right way of thinking is, what does Jesus think about me? What did he do for me? If you live by works and, and what you do, you'll feel you'll be crushed by a weight of impossibility or you'll really be elated and prideful as you look at yourself in relation to others that are beneath you. But Christ calls us away from that whole system to a place of being saved by his bloody body not by laws, by his missional action of being obedient unto death on a cross for us, not by telling us what to do in order to climb the ladder. He came to quiet our mouths with the notion that the only way to be saved is by God giving up his one and only son. So Tim Keller says uh, this idea about, he actually wrote an article called The Advent of Humility. He's a pastor in New York City. That the way to become humble is not to think about being humble or to try hard to be humble. That won't work. But instead to think about Jesus. You guys see that? Catch that? This is a very unique way of thinking that other religions don't match or even have a category for. The way to become humble is don't try to be humble. But think about Christ. Don't try to not be prideful. But think about, think about Christ. It reminded me of that very dated movie now, The Matrix. 1999, baby. Uh, but when uh, Morpheus says to Neo, stop trying to hit me and hit me. You guys remember that? One of you? Anyway, stop trying to hit me and hit me. Like, stop trying to be humble and, um, and think about Christ. Uh, but the, the greater uh, context here, I'll read this. This is from the article. Uh, he, he says this. This is really helpful. Humility is only achieved as a byproduct product of understanding, believing, and marveling in the gospel of grace. But the gospel doesn't change us in a mechanical way. Sociologists say that for the most part, the frameworks of meaning by which we navigate our lives are so deeply embedded in us that they operate pre-reflectively. They don't exist only as a list of propositions, but also as themes, motives, and attitudes. When we listen to the gospel preached or meditate on it in the scriptures, we are driving it so deeply into our hearts, imaginations, and thinking that we begin to instinctively live out the gospel. It also reminded me this week of, uh, for all of you Office fans out there, um, the moment that Jim proposed to Pam. You guys have uh, seen this before, uh, this moment where he is uh, finally proposing at a gas station in the rain. Uh, and in this episode, if you've seen it, he goes back to work after this. This is on his lunch break. He goes back to work and there's this um, kind of endearing moment where he's super kind to all of his coworkers, uh, which he isn't sometimes uh, in the show, if if you know that. But he's very kind and happy to see them uh, and everything right after this moment. And so the idea here is that Jim is not, when he goes back to work and he's super nice to his coworkers, he's not thinking hard in that moment about trying to be nice to his coworkers because that's what good people do. But instead, he's thinking about love. He's thinking about his fiance. He's thinking about his future wedding. And niceness just oozes out of him without him even thinking about trying to be nice. It's the same with Christianity. Goodness does not come from us and from trying harder. It comes from the gospel. From meditation on our spiritual marriage to Jesus Christ from happiness in salvation, and from freedom from needing to be good. It comes from wholesale focus on something, in this case, someone else. That's where humility comes from and where love, the power to love, comes from. Other than the good work uh, all all altogether. Or I can think about it this way, the goal, this is is what Christianity says, the goal in Philippians 2, the goal is not a better version of you, but Christ in you. That's the goal. Philippians 2 is not saying, I want a better version of you, Philippians, Philippian church. But Paul saying, I want Christ in you, I want to remind you Christ is in you. See how that's different? And he's the one producing the good works. So who can boast? See, Christians say to each other, go and do all kinds of good. And then before you go to sleep at night, just say, Christ did all of that. I did nothing because I'm dead. And in Christ, I've been raised. And it's he who's alive in me. It's not me anymore. This is from Galatians 2. When I've been raised with Jesus, it's he who is alive in me. It's not me. So he's the producer of all the good. The goal is not a better version of you. The goal is Christ in you. The goal is grace, not goodness. Grace, not goodness. The goal is death with Christ and rebirth in Him. The goal is sharing in His Spirit. And the more that we believe we do share in His Spirit, that we participate in His Spirit, that His Spirit lives in us, the less we'll try to bridge the gap between Him and us with our works. That that is key. Uh, if if you don't believe or struggle with the, the idea that the Spirit of God, if you're a Christian, is, is present, is, is, he, he has taken up His residence in your soul, there's no more separation, and I'm talking on a metaphysical level. All right, So we're going to see His face someday, and that final bridge will collapse. But right now, there is, we've been raised with Him, there's no more separation. We participate in the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. The more you believe that, the less you'll try to, Bridge whatever remaining gap you, you believe exists between you and God. Because if you don't believe that, you still think there's some kind, of barrier, some kind of gap, some kind of journey, some kind of bridge. Jesus died for me, but there's still something in between me and him. So what are you going to do if his death isn't enough? You're going to try to work and do more and care more about things and work up some kind of feelings within you that you think will turn God's head towards you in recognition, but if you believe that you participate in the Spirit now, regardless of what you feel, if you believe it, you'll stop clamoring, you'll stop competing, you'll look at others in freedom to love, and you'll be fine finishing last, you'll be fine losing the debate, you'll be fine confessing sin and looking like a mess before people, because you have your reward, you've been loved to hell and back right? You see how earth-shattering, world-changing, how shifting this is, and how different it is. It's not try harder and be better. It's believing Christ is in you, and the way he got there is because he wanted to, because he came to earth to bleed for you and me. He loved you that much. God gave up everything so that that possibility, which is true right now for Christians, can be a reality. And so to come back to the question, in terms of where we go from here, but the question of how does Philippians 2 impact our day-to-day lives, uh, a couple of summations here. The first is, I, um, I want to say this again. Passages like this and this one are about loving and being unified with the church. And so one thing I hope you've seen is how the gospel, knowing the gospel well, is crucial, but how our beliefs proceed and continually inform our right motives and actions and how important the local church is in in this equation. So, in other words, this thing going on in Philippians 2, this is not about some call to global humility, humanitarianism, uh, as though we kind of close our eyes, spin a globe and point, and just say, I'm going to care about uh, that people or country today. This is about... The church. This is about helping the disenfranchised and oppressed and poor and needy, which is all of us spiritually, but those who are physically in, that, in, in, the, in those places, looking among your church and caring there. So, like, thinking globally is not wrong. Uh, thinking humanitarianly is not uh, wrong and necessarily unchristian. Uh, it might sound sexy, though, on social media to kind of say you care and to give money, But true Christian living is much less glamorous, but but much more rewarding, but it's less glamorous. It's saying, I'm going to, this week, consider other people at Hiawatha better than me. And their needs are more important than mine. I'm going to cancel plans I had so I can pray for people at Hiawatha or babysit or bring groceries or go over and help them with a project or just call them up and say, how are you doing Can I pray for you and help you in some capacity? Using our spiritual gifts to build up the body. That's the better Christian question, the more explicitly biblical one, than how can I just care for the the global poor. Um, That's not bad, but no one ever really does that. It's too big. You you get crippled by it. Uh, And at best, when we engage in it, it's very common uh, just to feel high on ourselves for it, doing it for the wrong reasons, But instead, what Philippians is saying is love your church, preach the gospel to yourself, make your church spotless and uh, more beautiful and more mature in the gospel. And and all along, doing more to advance God's kingdom that way than our individualistic uh, social concerns do. All right, that's the first piece. The second piece is more important, though, uh, and that is to see it as all about Jesus Christ, and I'll I'll say it this way, actually, we need to read this passage and others like it, and understand not all of it is created equal. So I don't know where you guys are coming from with uh, your faith and with the Bible and all that. Not everything in the Bible is created equal. The Bible itself doesn't say that, so why should we think it? It calls parts of it greater and parts of it lesser. Uh, there. There are verses like, um, don't eat shellfish in the Old Testament, which we're not under anymore because Jesus abolished food laws. But there are also passages of the New Testament, like Paul saying, can you bring me my coat? I left it uh, when I was back with you guys. I'm cold. Winter's coming. So it's like, it's actually a really cool reason that's in the, in the New Testament. I think at the end of 2 Timothy, I'm forgetting where that is, one of his um, later letters. But there are more important things in the Bible than those things. Uh, There are sun passages and moon passages. There are greater and lesser pieces. And so understanding that, not just about the whole Bible, but about particular passages, really helps us navigate them and get clarity on them. So when we apply that to Philippians 2, we have to read it this way and understand there is a most important part, and that most important part is that Jesus was obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And that he was exalted and rose again. That's the most important part of all of this. Philippians 2 shows us essentially uh, the picture of God saying to his son, uh, before redemption, kind of the the gears of redemption uh, started to spin and clink and move, Uh, this, this implication of obedience that God wanted his son to move and to enter and to incarnate. Uh, human flesh and to come into the world to save us, but the, the interaction is something like this. When God the Father said to God the Son, this is how we will save them. This is it. There's no other way. We will suffer in their place, even the most horrific and shameful and painful of ways on a Roman cross. We will bear what they deserve so that justice can be done and mercy can be shown. Go, my son, quickly with resolve. And so I'll end with this. You know, Until you and I understand that this is Christianity, that before time began, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, schemed like this for you and me, for our salvation, and that God works overtime, all night long when we're sleeping, to protect us and work for our good and fight our battles, That his posture is always this to us, when we don't sin and when we sin, when we're humble and when we're prideful, when we're unified and not unified. If we're saved by grace, this is floor leveling, right? Until you understand that, and I do, there will never be any hope for life change, never be any hope for unity and love and humility and many many other fruits of the Spirit, you could say in in our lives this is const always and forever god's posture towards you he loves you so much he didn't stingily hold back his son but gave him up to die in the most shameful bloody way possible and that by the way is why it says in philippians 2 even on a cross it doesn't say jesus died just died or even just jesus died on a cross but he died even in the worst of ways even in the most shameful of ways, even in, this, even in this way where we might think surely God is going to skip over some form of kind of grossness and visceralness and disgust and shamefulness, but he doesn't. He goes the, into hell and back to the worst of things and back to save the worst of people like you and me. The most dead people like you and me to call into tombs where we lie like, uh, like you and I, again, like you and I do. So again, until we understand this God, this is why he says this stuff, why the Bible talks in these ways. Know this, meditate on this, drink it in, nourish yourself on it, believe it, and then work hard in the spirit to make Jesus' bride pure in these things, which means protecting from things that aren't this and to continue to propagate the things that do reflect good, good and true doctrine. So... With that said, guys, let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll respond with one final song. And also communion, too, if you want to take it uh, during the last song or afterwards. It's by both, uh, both doors here. So, all right. Father, thank you so much for your grace in Philippians 2. Thanks for, uh, for dying for us. Thank you for Jesus that you are obedient to the call, obedient unto death. Uh, Psalm 40 and Hebrews 10 both uh, highlight how you, um, you say, Jesus, Behold, I came to do your will. And to replace sacrifice, to replace laws, to replace commandments, to replace the old system with your bloody body as the only way that sinners can be mediated to God. So it is by grace we're saved. Uh, Christianity is not a a moralistic enterprise. Uh, The world has plenty of those and they're not working. Uh, What we need is a vision of a God who became the worst of things even though he was the best, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, nothing for the sake of us. Um, God, please cause our brains to be moved by this gospel. Cause our brains to somehow understand it. Cause our brains and our hearts to be moved and wrecked by this uh, so that our church can become all the healthier even in the areas of humility, love, and unity. Uh, Thank you, Jesus, again for dying for our sins. In Christ's name, amen.